and uh, get your Bibles out and open it up to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. And why don't we go ahead and find Ezra chapter 3 that we're going to be teaching from here in just a moment. I've got notes all over my little notepad here. So let's see if we can make this happen in a way that's coherent for all of us in the house today. Amen. We're finishing our unceasing series, and our unceasing series was reestablishing the corporate and the individual value of prayer. And so we spent the summer in this unceasing series, hashtag unceasing, in order to begin to download into everyone the need to pray individually as well as the corporate value of prayer. Jesus, Jesus cleansed the temple twice through the scripture because he was aggravated over the fact that his house had been turned into something other than a house of prayer. So when we begin to talk about the value of prayer, I realize, and this has happened all through the years. I remember years ago, and I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, and you'd have Wednesday night prayer service, and prayer just wasn't that much of a value. And we're still trying to create this value even in the church today. If you ask people and said, do you believe that prayer is valuable? Everybody nod their head yes. But if you ask them, would you participate? <laughs> At that level, everyone goes, I'm not sure. So we want to reestablish this value, and you need to begin by reestablishing it in your own life. Is there a prayer time? Are there times you're interceding and seeking the Lord? And then when we call prayer time, in fact, when we get to the fall, we've emphasized it all through the summer, but I'll be sharing that first Sunday of September that there'll still be corporate prayer times, maybe not as relentlessly as we've done it through the, the summer because <clears throat> summer school's out and we have other ways to be at liberty, but we'll still have those times. I want you to take that seriously and uh, participate because corporate prayer is important. And then number two, we purpose this series because we realize that prayer is the conduit through which God moves to perform his will and accomplish his purposes. Now hear me when I say that. In our movement, and most of us here today, maybe not all, but most of us I think have a background of full gospel, what we would call Pentecostal or charismatic experiences or foundations. And some of us even got to experience the sovereign movings of God where he came and we didn't have to do much and God just showed up in an amazing way. Well, that's great when God moves like that and you have seasons like that. But here's the raw fact of the matter according to scripture and according even to history. And that is those seasons do not last forever. The writer of Ecclesiastes says there's a time for every purpose, a season for every purpose under heaven. And so we thank God when those seasons of renewal, those seasons of revival come, those seasons where God moves sovereignly and it seems like he does it despite, you know, maybe our lack of commitments or maybe our lack of fervency or passion. But by and large, what he does is he wants us to walk life out in such a way that we begin to intercede and seek him on a consistent basis because that is the conduit through which God moves to perform his will. If my people who are called by my name, my people, he says, he didn't say everyone else, my people will what? Humble themselves and, and, and pray. And so that was the purpose of this series. The purpose is that we begin to get this value established again in our life. And so we've been going through these parts. I've been four sermons into the book of Ezra. We've been calling it Recovery Praying. And today is the day where I'm going to get to the pillars or the foundations of what it means to recover. There are some things you want to recover in your life. There are things that have been lost. There are things that have been ignored. There are things that have been neglected. And we want to recover all of these things. Now, as you will recall, what Ezra said, the template was, he said that nothing is right until the house of God is right. I'll say it again. Nothing is right until the house of God is right. Now, hear me when I say it. This not only includes the local church, but this is what I believe. I believe it also includes what some of us call 
the universal church. God is waiting for the universal church, the church in America, the church that we recognize as existing where there's a lot of believers and a lot of different local fellowships. But yet things are not right. And uh, the book of Ezra teaches us that until the house of God gets right, the nation will never be right and individual homes will never be right. In fact, in the book of Haggai, Haggai prophesied at exactly the same time as Ezra. And Haggai looked at him and he said, why are your houses paneled? Why are your houses finished? Why are your houses your concern? But the house of God isn't right. Now this is America. We've got everything in our lives right and we don't really care about the house of God. And I'm going to switch that. I'm going to talk about that. And it's time we had some concern about the house of the Lord. And that was the Ezra template. He says, you'll never have a nation. You'll never have a home. You'll never have relationships right. You'll never have all that you've dreamed of having until the house of the Lord is right. Now, Ezra 3, I want to begin reading here in this last lesson on recovery. And I want you to see some things. And I'm eventually going to leap over to chapter 9 as well. And uh, I think it'll be really insightful. So let's read Ezra 3, beginning with verse 10. And you can read it on this screen or in your Bibles that are before you. He writes, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance, ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now, think of this. They didn't have all the other you know, attributes of the temple. It was only the foundation. It was like looking at the cement if you were building a new house, it was just the cement was laid. And so there was a great shout that began to arise because this foundation was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men. It's interesting. This, uh, this word for old actually means ancient or ancient ones. The ancient ones. Bishop, we're getting to be the ancient ones here. The older ones, the older men, who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the shout was heard afar off. We're talking about recovery, praying, and we're going to dig into what exactly Ezra begins to pray in order to finish up the project that he's involved in. You know, sometimes God's ways, I don't know about you, but they're hard to see. Have you ever lived life, you're living it as under the Lord, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, and his ways are hard to see? I think recovery at times is that way. It's hard to see God's ways. Recovery of what was lost sometimes doesn't always return in the way we think it should return. And the temple in the passage that I just read to you was being recovered. But it wasn't being recovered exactly the way everybody thought it ought to be recovered. As I read to you, some were shouting for joy. But the older ones, the ancients... They were weeping. And so you have a group that's happy, and you have a group that's crying. And they're all crying or weeping or, or, or full of joy over the same exact thing. Why is that? It's because they were joyful, one group, because the work was going forward. In other words, the house of the Lord was being rebuilt. Some good things were going on, and so they were joyful. But the tears were beginning to fall because the foundation, they could tell by its very inception, was not going to look exactly like what they had remembered the old temple under Solomon had looked like. And so you have a group that's saying there's this new thing that's arising and we're shouting for joy, but the ancients are there, the older ones are there saying, yeah, but it's not what we used to have, it's not what 
we once had, and now we're weeping over this uh, recovery project. And so there's this tension that exists between this new thing that God was doing and the old thing that obviously God was on as well. And I think this is important for us to remember that God, God is facilitating a recovery. He is not facilitating a rerun. We are in recovery and not reruns. Now let's talk about that for just a minute. They were weeping because some of them remembered, remember it had only been 70 years, they remembered what Solomon's temple had looked like. Solomon's temple, for those of you that don't know, and I'm just going to do this briefly, but Solomon's temple was the temple that David had accrued for years and years and years. David accrued all of the different materials, the gold, the silver, the different uh, garment, uh, cloth articles, they, they, anything and everything imaginable he began to accrue because God was not going to allow David to build the temple, but indeed his son Solomon would be the one that would build the temple. And so by the time Solomon comes on the picture after David passes away, Solomon has this incredible you know, savings account, this money market with all this money in it that has been stored away in order to build this temple. And so as he begins to build this temple, it's interesting because as he builds it, it literally begins to define the word opulence. It was opulent. Now, I'll just put this out here, that the Lord has no problem with his house looking first class. God has no problem with this. A lot of times, and I understand there's good stewardship, stewardship plays an important role, and stewardship is a biblical concept, but hear me when I say this. How come, how come everything gets our best except when it comes to God's house? I've seen this for years. We've taken, you know, we'll, we'll through the years, have done missions things and th sent things to mission fields, and everybody, if, if we're going to get people things, we'll clear out all our old cruddy stuff and we'll give it to the mission field while we keep all the good stuff. I'm telling you, God... God has no problem with opulence. And I'll tell you why he has no problem with it. It's because, as Haggai would say, he says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. God has more than enough of whatever he needs. And when we begin to, to build or to recover, he wants it recovered in a way that's befitting his, his stature and his nature. There's nothing wrong with opulence. Sometimes people criticize the church for its opulence. Now, I, I understand the church needs to to have all sorts of benevolent ministries, it needs to reach out, but our main priority is the worship and the exaltation of the Lord our God. And Solomon's temple was opulent, gold, silver. It was one of the wonders of the world at one time. Uh, rulers from other countries would come to see the opulence of this former temple. Number two is that this former temple, in their mind, demonstrated the manifested presence of God. If you'll read, either in Chronicles or Samuel, about the dedication service of this former temple, uh, when the praise began to take place and when the offerings uh, were offered, all of a sudden the glory of God descended in such a fashion that uh, the priests, the Bible says, were unable to stand. The, the, the glory of God, in the Hebrew it's the kabod. If you translate it into the Greek, it becomes shekinah. The striking radiance of God, the weightiness of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. The priests couldn't even stand under it. I don't know whether they went out in the spirit. I don't know whether they just fell to their faces and unable to move. I don't know exactly how it happened. But they all remember watching this manifested presence take place. And it was absolutely mind-boggling, over the top, off the chain. And then the third thing about the former temple that was important was the fact that they wanted those days back. That's what they wanted. They wanted the day when there was this incredible temple. It had everything imaginable. It was the best of everything. They wanted those days back when the glory of God was falling and, and the priests were unable to stand. They wanted those days back. Who doesn't want those days back? And sometimes, and this is what I'm talking about, we... We think about a, a time long ago that we're trying to recover, that we'd like back. I'd love to have a time back when uh, all the bank accounts were full and everything was, was being paid for. I'd love that time back. I'd love a time back when we as a church had an amazing facility. I'd love that time back. 
I'd love all sorts of things back. Why can't we have certain things again? Listen, I, none of this is wrong. None of it's wrong to remember back when God was sovereignly moving and hands were laid and, and you could sense the presence of God and, and, and all the, the manifested experiences. Nothing wrong with that. But there comes a moment when you need to realize God isn't trying to get us to go back to recapture something. He's trying to get us to build what it is that needs built today and to recover the precepts of old, but they have to be applied to the era that you and I are in. I'm not going back to 1980, but I want the valid biblical precept and the precept we've learned through the years to be embraced, to be recovered in order to rebuild again. And these are the things sometimes I think in recovery that we forget or are neglected. But this is what we do need to remember in all of that. And it comes out of the book of Haggai. And I want to read this to you because this is the promise. The promise if we will rebuild, the promise if we will recover, all of these promises, if they take place, this is what is promised in the book of Haggai. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Hear me, he's prophesying now to those same people who were weeping as they were watching the foundation being laid in the book of Ezra. So he's looking at them and he's basically getting a word of knowledge and he says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this isn't anything anymore. This, this isn't anything like we had. Listen, I can go through the years. I'm going to stop here for just a minute. And I can take you through the years. Now, all of us have different journeys, probably have participated in different churches through the years. I'm just telling you some things I've just noticed. I remember, I remember, sweetheart, when, when we had the, the fiasco, the debacle at James Island, and it wasn't going to work. The ministry just wasn't going to work there. And so we had to ostensibly start over. We had to build, we had built a building there together. We built family life centers. There was a school. There was a, there was a nice, I would call it a nice facility. There were some great moments of ministry that took place there. That was 21 years ago. But I remember when we, we saw it wasn't going to work and, and decisions were made. And I'm not reliving all of that. I'm just giving an illustration here. I remember when we had to start at the old Fort Johnson Civic Center, which I always chuckled at the name. It was called the Fort Johnson Civic Center. It sounds like Civic Center. Wow. No, I will assure you the Civic Center was not wow. It was this brick. It was just a square brick building with some linoleum. Yeah, just cement block with linoleum on the floor. And it had a few folding chairs. I mean, it was about as, as rough as imaginable. Yeah, maybe not yeah, bigger than the stage here. And uh, I remember that. And then I remember how, uh, you know, we did our tabernacle time. We went over to um, the Hampton Inn. Some of you may have remembered going to the Hampton Inn. And that was nice. The Hampton Inn was nice. But it wasn't like having your own facility. And then we went over to what we called Legacy One, which was over by Hay Tire. And Legacy One, let me tell you, we didn't know what we were doing. We started renoing Legacy One, not realizing you had to get permits to do that. And so we were like in the middle of this reno project over at Legacy One, and what do you call him, the code enforcement guy came by, and he put this big old red sticker on the door. It said, stop work. And so we had gotten a, a wall up about halfway, hadn't even got any paint on it yet, and because all of us were just, we just didn't know what we were doing. At least I didn't know what I was doing. Maybe someone didn't, didn't tell me. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that was rough. In fact, one Sunday it was raining hard, and something broke on the roof, roof line over on the side, and this gush of water came down, and there was about four or five people sitting on the side. Were you over on that side? You remember, you were baptized that morning. Just, it went gush. And it was like, oh, no. And I'll never forget, there was one, there was one lady that came up and uh, happened to share this with my wife, but I know there were numbers thinking. She just said what a lot of people were thinking. She looked and she said, I can't do this anymore. 
I can't, what was she saying when she said, I can't do this? She was saying, I can't, I've seen, I've seen the opulence of what we had, and now I'm in this, I'm in this rat hole. This isn't going to be like it was. This isn't going to be like what we had. This isn't going to be the same place. This is going to take work. This is going to take effort. This is going to take prayer. This is going to take something more than I'm willing to give. I don't want to do that. I just want to get in a wagon and have somebody pull me spiritually for the rest of my life. That's what was going on. These people were looking at it and they were saying, this isn't going to be Solomon's temple. We're not going to have the same gold. We're not going to have the same silver. We're not going to have the same injection plastic playground equipment. We're not going to have all the special individualized rooms for everybody. We're not, it's not going to be anything like what we have. It's going to be nothing compared to that. This is what God's people do. The instant they hit any challenge, they say to themselves, I tell you what I'm going to do. Instead of pressing through my challenges, I'm going to go find a wagon that I can go jump on that everyone else will pull me instead of me having to pull anything. You want to be recovered, but you don't want to participate in the recovery. And I've seen it for years. Now, I'm talking about you. You all are here. You understand it's never about you. You're the choir. You're getting preached to. But I got people on YouTube and Facebook that check in on us still, and I am talking about you. I told you in September, I was going to, it's no holds bar. It's going to be like WWE, it's going to be raw. Why not? Why shouldn't it be? My first message is going to be should we keep on smiling and just say nothing? That's my first message in September. Do we just keep smiling and say nothing? And it's not just about me. It's just, it's American church life. You just say, it's just, it's, it's, it's not like it was. It's not like it, like I wanted. It's not, it's not like what I remember. It's not what I grew up with. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not. Come on, I want something more. So I'm going to go jump in another wagon that will pull me. Because we all know it's all about you. That's America right now. And that's what was happening in Ezra's time. Everybody wants a good temple, don't they? Well, we all want a great temple. We want the best temple money can buy, except it's not going to be any of my money. But we want a great temple. And, and so they're looking at it and they're weeping. Sometimes the ancients get beat on sometimes. And, and hear me when I'm saying this. They're getting beat on because we think they just want to go back and get what they had. But hear me. It's not, just, it's not just old people wanting to keep their old ways. There's young people, young adults. I'm finding it more and more in young adults. Young adults spring out. The minute, the minute anything is asked, they just they can't do it. And that's why America at its root is rotting. If we had another world war like World War II, we would lose. Because you couldn't find a half a million millennials that would storm the beaches of Normandy. Because they wouldn't like the ship that they would be carted over in, number one. The food would be bad. And they'd have to put their phones up for a while. I told you, smackdown, it's happening. What do I have to lose? That's what I feel like anymore. What do I have to lose? America's got to hear it from somebody, and they probably won't pay attention to me. But that's what was going on. We saw, we saw what it was, and it's not going to be that way anymore. Now listen, I'm getting to the promise here. Here's the part that nobody gets. And the reason, the reason we don't see renewal and revival anymore, this is what the prophet said. He said, be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land. So he's just not looking at me and bishop and leadership. He says to all the people, suck it up, buttercup. Suck it up. Be strong, people of the land, people of the promise. We all want a promise, don't we? We all have a promise. We're all recovering some promises. I've got some promises. You've got some promises. We want to recover this. But Haggai says, what you're, what you're doing is so backwards. 
He says what? And, and, come on, and. All right, I got from about one to three to 10. It's work for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains strong, excuse me, my spirit remains among you, do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth and sea and dry land. I'll shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. You know why God shakes things? To see if we'll come. You know why your life gets shook? Come on now, make application. Connect dots. Why is my life shaking? No, I don't understand why my life shaking. It's to get you to come. It's to get you to seek him. It's to get you to drill in again. It's to get you to, to press in. It's to get you. That's why life shakes at times. And they shall come. That's the only time we will come is when things start shaking. Isn't that true? We don't come because we're obedient. We come because we're shook. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Listen to this. This is the promise. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The key is this. The latter is always greater than the former. What God has will always be greater than what was. And I'm actually speculating a little bit at this point, but I wonder, I wonder at times if the two waves that came back to restore the temple was necessary because there were probably curveballs in the recovery. Remember, Zerubbabel comes first with the first wave, and then Ezra apparently leads the second wave. Now, why, why did there have to be two waves? It's because perhaps people didn't get or simply weren't prepared for all that was going to be necessary with them in order to bring the recovery that God wanted to see. See, recovery has a context. God is indeed establishing foundations. That's why in September I'm going to this new series because I believe that in America there has to be some new foundations laid for the church. We've got to relay, some, relay those foundations, and I believe he's calling us as we relay those foundations to walk on some old paths. Remember Jeremiah 6.16 says, the Lord speaks to Jeremiah to prophesy to the people, and he says to them, remember the old paths and walk in them in order that you might be blessed. And then the response comes from the people, we will not walk in them. They didn't want to be able to, to continue to embrace those things that never change in order to build something that is contextually relevant to the day that they're living in. Old paths have been lost. Old paths must still be laid. And uh, this generation needs to know some of those old paths, and that's when it gets challenging. It may even get confusing. Some were crying. They want to recapture a memory. They want to recapture the way it was. They want to recapture all those good feelings and thoughts. But we're not recapturing. We're recovering the recovery of God's presence, the recovery of his precepts, the recovery of his power. They confused the former temple as the goal. The goal here is not the recovery of Solomon's temple. The goal is the recovery of the presence of God and the purposes of God in the temple that exists today. That's the recovery. It's not about rebuilding the charismatic renewal. We're not trying to rebuild the latter rain movement. We're not going to rebuild Azusa Street. Most of you wouldn't go to Azusa Street. It was a cruddy old Pentecostal barn on the other side of the tracks that hardly could stand up. We wouldn't even go. If Azusa happened now in the way that Azusa happened, none of us would even go to that. But we're not trying to recover that. 
We're not recovering the healing revival. We're not recovering the brush arbor. Some of you may even remember the stories of the older ones, even ancient, more ancient than I am, who would go to a camp meeting and they'd go to the tabernacle and they'd talk about the outside brush arbor altars where you would kneel literally at a tree stump in order to seek the Lord. We're not here to revive those old tabernacles. We, we had a great celebration at Anson Street, and I loved the story and the history of Anson Street, but we're not here to somehow recover Anson Street or when it was taken to Fulton Street there in New York City. We're not trying to recover the third awakening, the second awakening, or the first awakening. We're not going to recover Martin Luther and someone's going to nail 95 theses on a church door somewhere. We're not about reruns. This is about recovery. It's recovering the presence of God, the nature of God, the glory of God, the honor of God, the name of God. We're recovering our obedience. We're recovering timeless precepts in order that he might move through that again in order one more time to reach this world that is broken and dysfunctional and in sin and it needs a savior. It doesn't need help. It doesn't need affirmation. It's dead and it needs a resurrection. That's the nature of God is to resurrect. He's not trying to make us feel better. He's not trying to give us a better week. He's not just trying to make your life smooth and with no ripples. He's trying to get us to be a holy people, a spotless people, a people that are prepared for his coming. It is time you and I fought for his bride. Amen. This is really in me. Have you noticed? I'm sorry. I'm compassionate. I'm not mad. Don't ever think I'm mad at anybody. I'm not mad. Well, I'm a little aggravated probably at some that are watching on YouTube, but I'm not mad at you. But here's the deal. God is the only one that can eclipse himself. We cannot eclipse him. So what he did in every move or movement of the Lord, we can't try to eclipse. This is part of our problem. I'm already dipping into September here. I'm sorry, but, but this is part of our problem. We think we have more ingenuity, knowledge, understanding, structure, organization, that we can do it better than God. We cannot eclipse the Lord. We think we can create all kinds of things that we can create something better than Pentecost. We do. That's what we think. We think somehow if I get enough leadership principle in me, if I go to enough school and get enough education, if we put enough structures in, if we get our systems right, if we market this thing just perfectly, can you imagine the first century church even having these discussions? And yet they were able to win Sometimes 25, 30% of whole cities. Oh, but not us. Not us. No, but we will create some of the best coffee bars in town. God is the only one that can eclipse himself. Whatever God has done is wonderful. But even, even in him, it's not the pinnacle because since he is infinite and inexhaustible, that he has the capacity to do something that can only be described by him, and then he can outdo himself. That's remarkable. And only God can do it. And he does it most of the time in paradoxical ways. He does it in such a way where we don't think he could, anything could ever, good could come from this, and yet God pulls it out of that in order to demonstrate to everybody this is this is me, the Lord. So that's why we preach, and I know Bishop preaches this as well. This is why we preach, that we are not, as the church, going out. If you hold to, a, if you hold to an eminent rapture, that's perfectly fine. And many, 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 many people do, but hear me when I say this. The church is not going out with its tail between its legs. We're not going out as this broken, dysfunctional beat up, crazy, out of order, disobedient, lawless entity that Jesus says, I better get them while, while the getting's good. 
Because if I wait much longer, you're going to be a whole lot worse. I'm, I'm, no, I don't know where we get that. We are going to begin to get a, a, a church that's going to begin to see the greater take place than the former. So I'm going to give you four pillars to recovery. All right, write these down. Four pillars to recovery. Make this a part of your prayer life. I'm going to hurry and uh, hopefully be done quickly here. Everyone wants to recover what's been lost. You've got to make these pillars a part of your prayer life. The first one is this. Four pillars for praying for recovery is revival. In other words, all of us have to begin to pray, God, stir us up. Now, in Ezra chapter 9, why don't you turn over there? I didn't get it on the screen overhead. Ezra chapter 9, verse 9, says this. This is in the middle of his prayer. Ezra 9, 9, it says, For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia. And he says four things here that I'm going to mention. To revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. He begins to pray. This is what he's doing. He's setting things in the spirit in order that they might manifest naturally uh, in the lives of God's people. The first thing we've got to pray about is revival. God, stir us up. Everybody, if you'll just trust me for a minute, say after me. Say, Lord Jesus, stir me up. That should, that should be your prayer every day. Stir me up. Revival. It's interesting. It says Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now, what were they doing when it came to help them? Were they rolling up their sleeves? They may well have been rolling up their sleeves as well. But we find out maybe in chapter 6 a little bit more. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. So the prophets were there. Now, I'm here to tell you, I don't know. Sometimes I say to myself, what are you? What are you, Pastor Baird? Are you a teacher? Are you a pastor? Are you an evangelist? I've done some of that. Are you a prophet or are you an apostle? Or <laughs> all, all five, I just manifest different ways. I can tell you this much. I know there's a prophetic thing in me that just comes up all the time. You know what my job is, according to this? Is to help stir you up. Is to stir you up under the things of God. To remind you that life won't work right until this is right. Life won't work right until we get this right. The church is his heart. If we aren't participating in God's heart, then what do you think that says? These things are important. Revival. Stir us up. Will you allow your heart to be stirred again? What will it be stirred for, Pastor? I'm stirred. I'm stirred to be prosperous. I'm stirred to be healed. I'm stirred that God would put his favor upon me. I'm stirred that my house would be a pipeline for all the goodness of God. Listen, I, I, and that's fine, but we need to get stirred for the house of the Lord. We need to recover some things. Revival is usually defined, unfortunately, in individual terms, but we need a corporate revival. We need a revival for the house of the Lord. Revival. That's number one. Number two he began to pray for repair. Now, this isn't only in the house. Obviously, it's in your house as well, but we need to begin to repair those things that are broken. What does it mean to repair? Let me give you an example. If you own a car, which most, or at least many of you, own a vehicle, it generally works, let's say, but then all of a sudden something happens and a part breaks or something happens, and what do you need to do? You need to either take it in for repair or you do the repair yourself. You have what it is that is working for you, but there's something with it that isn't quite right, so you repair it. You repair or you fix that which you have. I believe that there are things we do in the house of the Lord. There are things you may do in your house. 
that may be there, but they need repaired. All right? It's not that you don't do it. It needs repaired. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, for example, if we were to say, do we pray? We would say, yes, we pray, but we need to repair what it means to pray. Are we praying right? Are we praying in a way we should be praying? Are you praying at your house? That needs to be repaired. We need to begin to obey the commands of the Lord to repair these things. Ezra, it's interesting that Ezra in chapter 3 tells us that he arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Ezra understood that there had to be a repair of the altars. And remember when we were talking about repairing the altars, repairing these things? And I believe that there are many things that need repaired. I think we need to repair. It proved to me today that this is true. We aren't, now again, I'm not angry, I'm not mad, this isn't even correction, I'm just telling you, we've got to repair what it means to worship. We worship and we do, we do the three songs to get service started, and, and that's good and it's in order, but we need a repair to be done in this area. We need to repair preaching. We have gotten used to conversationally self-help messages, and this needs to be repaired. We need to hear a prophetic passion come alive again in the church. And this is an area that has to be repaired. We do a lot of eisegesis. In other words, I have a great thought, and I'm going to find a verse that matches this great thought I just had. And we don't go through the Bible, and we, know, and we say to ourselves, what was God saying at this point? I don't know of what it is that I might want, but I know this. I want what God wants. And this has to be repaired. It's repaired by the study of the scripture, the discipline of reading, the discipline of asking questions, the discipline of study. We need to repair. I'll tell you something that needs repaired. We need to repair our, our witness, witnessing. Now, come on, let's just, let, let's just all put our arms up like this for just a minute and receive the conviction of the Lord. All of us. Come on, all of us. All of us are going to be convicted right now. It's going to drop. How have we witnessed our faith? When was the last time? I'm not talking about inviting somebody to church. Let's just keep that off the radar right now. I'm not talking about getting them to church. I'm talking about when have you witnessed your faith? Maybe you do it a lot, so maybe there is no conviction upon you. But I'm talking outside of this, this arena, we need this repaired. Do you understand the early church said this? We could not help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Has that ever happened to you, where you just walked into a grocery store, and, and you were walking down, hey, you, you in the aisle, yeah, 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 you, you, the one, you're looking, yeah, the depends, you're looking on that one right there. I got to tell you, because I can't help but speak the things which I have seen and heard. Said, do I have to be a nut? No, I'm not saying you have to be a nut, I'm just using an outlandish illustration to explain how often does that happen. We've got to repair our evangelism. Evangelism isn't me creating another program that nobody comes to except me. I've had people, why don't you ever do any evangelism? Because I create something and then you're out of town. That's why. And furthermore, that's never how it was set up in the Bible. And we'll get to that. You know what evangelism is? Evangelism is you and me doing life. That's what evangelism is, but we don't even think in those terms anymore. We don't. Hey, just put your arms out again. Say, convict me. Convict me, Lord. Why isn't God blessing? Why isn't God moving? Because what kingdom work is really taking place in our lives? I'm not saying go forth from this place and go be obnoxious or go be a jerk or, you know, I'm not saying, that's not what I'm telling you. Go be weird. I'm not telling you that. I'm just saying these things have to be repaired. We wonder why God isn't moving and we're not moving. We have to repair the ordinances of the church. Baptism, we need to repair baptism. We need to repair, again, the table of the Lord. It's amazing to me how these things always are needing constant repair. I'm going to open up some of these cans and tell us. And we wonder why God doesn't move. It's because we don't operate according to his patterns. If we get the pattern right, maybe God will move again. 
Do you understand that when God in the first, when the Lord moved in the first great awakening, he moved, he moved at uh, Jonathan Edwards Episcopalian Church. They were singing, they were singing ancient hymns. He read his sermon from, he just read it, just read it with, with old English that most of us wouldn't even recognize. And all of a sudden God dropped in the midst of that and we make fun of it. And we make fun of it to our own detriment. Because we've got all the contemporary sounds, the riffs, the lights, and we've got everything. We just don't have any presence of God anymore, and we wonder why we aren't recovering anything. Now, I'm not mad at you. You believe that, right? I'm not mad at you. Why would I be mad at you? You're here. You're the choir. But we've got to begin to repair these things. Repair. I've been thinking about all kinds of things. You know, Brad mentioned something the other day. I just I mentioned Brad that that you know we call him Pastor Brad, but I've never officially ordained him. I know you've been ordained, and and but we've never done that. And he just he just said it kind of off to the side on a conversation we were having. And I thought to myself, you know, that would be good. But then I thought to myself, but this needs repaired. And I think even he would say that that if that was if that was a moment of significance, then that that. Something needs to happen there that says this is a credible endorsement. But we'll ordain anybody. Send your $25 in. You can find the organization on the Internet, and they'll send you your papers. We do this all the time. You want to plant a church? Go to the right conference. Spend $3,000. They'll give you the box, and you can church plant out of a box. Oh, I'm not even done with this yet. Not even close. Not even close. This is going to, this is, maybe, maybe I can do a tag team with Pastor Fred there, and I'll just tag him, and he'll come up, and he'll pick up on it. Because I'm here to tell you, we're going to pile drive some things before this is done. Repair. Do we have a heart to repair? What do you need to repair in your house? I'm not telling you what to do. You need to ask, is there anything that needs repaired here? Because I'm telling you, when it's, if we get the temple, if we get the template right, I believe God will move. If we get the heart right with the template, I believe you could see an awakening. But it's going to take some repair. That's what Ezra started to pray about. The third thing was this. I must rush. Then it's to rebuild. Remember, he said here in Ezra chapter 9, he said, Revive us, repair the house of the Lord, and rebuild its ruins. There are some things that, need, that we're doing that, that, you know, it's not bad, but it needs repaired. It's like you have a car, it's not running quite right, but it'll still get you to work. It'd be better if you would repair that. So there are some things like that that we need repaired, but there are other things that just plain old need rebuilt. It's interesting, in Ezra 3.10, it says that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaphs, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David the king of Israel. In other words, that they, they laid the foundation, they had to rebuild some of the foundation uh, as they were doing this whole recovery project. It's interesting what Isaiah prophesies in this regard as well. Remember in Isaiah 61 where it says that the light will come and shine and the glory of the Lord will arise upon you and all that incredible promise. Then you know what happens out of that promise? It says this in that fourth verse, and they shall do what? Rebuild the old ruins. See, what happens is the glory of the Lord shows up and we play in it like a swimming pool. And we never rebuild the old ruins. The glory of God and the presence of God is wonderful. But why should God send his presence when we won't rebuild with it? We're like junkies at times. We just want our next buzz. We want our next feel good. We want our next experience. We want that sense in worship. We want this. We want it. We want it. We want it. And if it's not there, then it wasn't a good day. It wasn't a good service. Well, why should God come when he knows you ain't going to do anything with it? You're not going to rebuild anything with it. You following me? I keep coming back here. I'm not mad at you. I'm kind of aggravated just at the church in America. They shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. We're going to get back to that one here in just a minute. But there are some things that we need to rebuild. Rebuilding means the construction of things we have lost or are missing. We have to rebuild some things. We've got to rebuild. This is precept. All of us need to rebuild, for instance, personally. 
I'm just, and I'm going there. We've got to rebuild the tithing culture. We've got to re, if you've lost it and it's not happening, then it needs to be rebuilt. It needs to be reestablished. Some of you may need to rebuild the whole prayer thing. It just ain't happening. You need to rebuild this again. You need to rebuild. We've got to rebuild the sense of our commitments and our covenants. We don't even talk about meditation anymore, although the scripture talks a lot about meditating, and we did a series on meditating concerning the imagination. But how many of us, how many of us need to rebuild our whole mental, our mental landscape so we begin to see and believe again these things need rebuilt? I believe we have to rebuild the concept of covenant and what covenant means. What does it mean to be in covenant with somebody? I don't think we even know what that means. I think we need to rebuild doctrinal stability, which is why on most Sundays, we didn't today, but on most Sundays we recite a creed because we need doctrinal stability, but we don't want doctrine anymore. We just want the buzz. In fact, doctrine has almost become a dirty word when Jesus said it was very, very important. And we got to rebuild, I think, the commission. What's the commission of the church? Is there anything else that we do? Is there, is there some mandate that's upon us why we exist as a community? I think these things have to be rebuilt. Now, this rebuilding doesn't happen overnight, and it isn't going to happen after September 2nd or just on September 2nd. It's gonna ta it takes a while to rebuild, and it may take some waves, and it's going to take the help of the Lord, and it may take a little revival in the midst of it. But I'm here to tell you, I believe God is coming for a bride, and we need to fight for it. And then the last thing, which Isaiah touches on as well, is when Isaiah said, build a wall. Build a wall. Build a wall. Have we heard this before? Build a wall. I'm not going there. Why did he say build a wall? Because a wall, did I put it up there? No, I didn't. A wall not only protected the city of Jerusalem from its enemies, but a wall represented an identifiable place where the Lord reigns. What does that mean? It means this, that when the wall went up around Jerusalem, there was protection, yes, but there was also a geographically defined area in a wall. There was a geographically defined area with which the nations of the world could look and they could identify an actual place where God reigned. He may not reign anywhere else, but you get behind that wall and there the Lord reigns. Now hear me, this is the cool part. Because the cool part is that Zechariah would prophesy, he said that there would come a day that Jerusalem would be inhabited without walls. Now what does that mean? It means that while there's an identifiable place that God reigns that people can point to, that's not where God wants to keep it. He wants to go beyond those walls till the whole earth is filled with his glory. But it doesn't start by simply interceding, oh God, fill the earth with your glory. It starts first with fill me with your glory. It starts then with fill my house with glory. Fill this house with glory. Why is that? It's because the world always needs a place that it can look to and say this. I don't know if God's moving anywhere else, but I'm telling you, God reigns there. That's why that wall was built. If the house of the Lord is recovered, let me tell you, if the house of the Lord is recovered in America, I'll tell you what will happen. You won't have to spend un gazillion dollars on national defense. The reason we are so, we are facing our schools, our public uh, uh, malls, public areas and arenas, our borders. Do you understand why we're facing what we're facing in this hour by way of security? It's because the church is out of order. It's out of order. We want to blame the administration. And politicians have plenty to be accused of. But I'm here to tell you that it's because of our dysfunction. It's because of our lack. It's because of our out-of-orderedness is the reason why we have lost a sense of the hand of God upon us. That is why Ezra and others looked and said, repair, 
rebuild, restore, recover the house of the Lord. If the house of the Lord is right, everything else gets right. And here's what I'm gonna tell you. This is what the people don't often know. They'll often complain that, yeah, but the Lord requires of me tithe and offerings and yanny, yanny, yanny. And if you don't want to put your tithe or your offering in, then he'll get it through taxation so you can have bigger militaries and build your walls and put up all these artificial elements that will somehow make you think you're safe when we all know that the human depravity will find a way through it and can still get us. Amen. Everybody's worried about their extra 10 bucks, not realizing that $10 will go further in the kingdom of God than any other way. But, but what we'll do is we'll just let them keep on. They'll tax us out of existence because we'll demand security. We'll demand, you know, you know I don't have a job, so we're going to give everybody a job. Do you understand what we're doing? Government has become our God. It's become our God. And, and it's forced tithing. It's beyond tithing to the government. The government takes 20, 30, 40, 50%. Our own municipality takes 10%. And they'll keep taking it, and we'll keep thinking it's going to make a difference, not realizing that as long as this is out of order, and, and until we get a revelation of that, you better go out and you better buy you some more guns to stuff in your house. And I'm a gun guy. You don't want to come in my house at night. I'll send you on. In Jesus' name, with the love of the Lord. So I'm not, a, I, hear, hear what I'm saying. But there aren't enough guns that you can buy that can ultimately keep you safe. But we don't get it in America. We'll just turn the lights and the fog machine and the new songs on. And as long as it's scratching my itch, well, I'm good with that. Not realizing we're spiraling. I want some things recovered. I want to recover it not just for me. I want to recover it for the name of the Lord. I want to recover it for my family. I want to recover it for my kids and my grandkids. I, listen, I am as serious as a train wreck right now. Something has gripped me in this area, and we'll get there. I want to finish with this. Can you take one more story, and then I'll be done. I was reading that Luther book, and he told this wonderful story. In fact, it's called, if you follow it, historians call it <clears throat> the Cloaca Experience. The Cloaca Experience. In Latin, Cloaca means, and, the, and this is the nicest way I can translate it. In Latin, Cloaca means sewer. Sewer. S-E-W-E-R. Sewer. Now, I can't say what a better translation would be because you don't say that from church platform. So you're following me. If I were to say this, cloaca happens. Are you following me? You're following me now? That's what cloaca is. And Luther, when he was, when he was being chased, he went to this place called the Cloaca Tower, which is exactly what you think it is. It was a place where we would call it, well, the bathroom, but it probably better be defined as the outhouse. I mean, that's what you would call it, the outhouse. Anybody ever seen a real outhouse, by the way? Yeah. You ever seen one? My grandparents had an outhouse at their farm for years. They didn't get indoor plumbing until my mom was in, I think, in senior high school. So, I mean, and, and, and we used to go visit because my granddad kept it out there for reasons. Even after he got indoor plumbing, he kept it, and I don't know all the reasons. People have asked me if I've ever told the story. They said, well, why did your granddad keep it out there? And I said, I don't know. Maybe since he only had one bathroom inside, if there was an emergency, maybe that was the emergency. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Even stranger than that, though, was if you opened up the outhouse. And think of me as this elementary school kid. When you opened up the outhouse, it was a two-seater. Now, I ask myself the question, why would you need a two-seater? I mean, I mean, I understand closeness, but I don't know that that's, I mean, I don't know. So I never got an answer to that one either. Maybe if you had a lot of kids and maybe it was important and maybe that's just how it worked. I don't know. I never got an answer to that. But it, but, but it was fascinating to me. And so anyway, when I came back to Luther, all right, I'm, I'm digressing. Back to Luther. 
He had, he had stomach issues. His stomach, we don't know whether he had an IBS. We don't know if he had a disease. We don't know because of the stress that he was under why this was so. But he spent, and I'm not kidding when I say this, he probably spent about three quarters of his life in the cloaca. And while he was in the cloaca, he translated the whole New Testament. He wrote commentaries. I mean, this is how much time he spent there. But this is the part I was reading as he was talking about, because it's called the cloaca experience. Have you ever had an experience in the cloaca? I'm trying to make you smile and think. But it is not true that you've been in the shower. I'll bet God's talked to you in a shower. Amen? Maybe done your devotions in the cloaca. I don't know. But he spent so much time in there because of his issues, really legitimate, that God healed him later in life. He finally was healed of those issues. But he spent so much time in there that it literally became the place where he sought God. And the reason they call it the cloaca experience is because many people think that Luther was moved by God because he was so angry and incensed by what he saw by Tetzel, who was selling the indulgences, that it was sort of out of his anger. And Luther had a acerbic tongue. I mean, he would, he would say anything. I mean, things. if you think I would say anything, Luther would say anything and use the word. I mean, and, and so everybody thought that because he was just so mad at what he was watching by way of dysfunction and sin that that he just was mad, and that got the Reformation started, but that's really not true. You know where God met him? God met him, and really, his theology was formed when, when he was in the cloaca. Now, listen to me very carefully. Something dawned on him as he spent so much time there. He said, is it not amazing that God himself comes down and speaks to me in the sewer? And he began to think about this, and this is a good springboard in the days ahead, that the very thought of incarnation, incarnation is God himself enfleshing himself in human body. Think about what God did. Think about what the Lord, the Lord who could have come to this earth on clouds of glory. He could have, he could have been surrounded by, by all the precious elements of this world. He could have descended from these clouds with thousands, tens of thousands of angels singing his glory. And he could have jumped off the clouds into the earth. And as he stepped into the earth, he could have looked at us all with that immense glory and power and honor and all that you can imagine. And he could have looked at us and he said, turn or burn. He could have. But what did he choose to do? He enfleshed himself like us. He was formed, this is mysterious in some ways, in this, this body of an unmarried girl. And when the time came, through the pain of childbirth, descends through the woman's canal. And as, she comes, as he comes forth out of her with the pain and the blood, he is delivered in the middle of a cow stall. And I don't know how he was delivered, but he came into a cow stall. And if you've ever been in one, there was cloaca everywhere. He chose to do his redemptive recovery work by breaking out of glory and moving into the cloaca. And Luther got a hold of that thing. And he said, is this not the most amazing thing in the world? That God himself, and hear me when I say this, that God is spirit, but everything that happens in the spirit must eventually be incarnated in this earth. It eventually is enfleshed. It's not just on paper, it is reality. Healing isn't just waiting for us in heaven. Healing is today. All these things in the spirit are wonderful, but if that's all they are, then it's meaningless. Everything of the spirit, including God himself, enfleshes himself, incarnates himself, and he steps into the earth. And hear me when I say this, that right now, as I was reading that story, I thought to myself, and this is what Luther thought as well, right now, the church of America is waiting around in a lot of cloaca. But the good news is this, that God himself is willing one more time to step into the cloaca and redeem it all. If we'll receive him, 
and we'll receive his ways, and we'll be teachable, and we'll be correctable, and we'll be malleable and changeable and transformable. If we get the revelation that it's really not about me anymore, it's all about him. If we'll get these things, I believe one more time, he'll step into it. Isn't that incredible when you think about it? That ought to minister to somebody because right now you would tell me, Pastor, if you knew my life, you'd say my life was cloaca. Good news, God will step right into it. And he wants to step right into us. And he wants to step right into the Church of America. And, if, and I believe, I believe something can happen that can only be explained by him. Well, I delivered my burden. <laughs>